We will begin in Luke 24, the text that was read for us this morning. Always grateful to hear the congregation sing. I was watching a little bit of highlights of uh, some World Cup soccer matches those few weeks back. And those crowds at soccer matches, if you're familiar with soccer matches, are always singing songs, right? Oh, they chant sometimes, and other times there's a a sing-songy kind of chant going on, and I have no idea what they're saying, Um, but it is unique to hear 30, 40, 50, 60, sometimes 70,000 people at those games in unison carrying some theme along in music. Uh, But I think the church can rival whatever those songs are uh, as we sing of the victory that is ours in Christ. Hallelujah. Let me give you a little bit of a plan for our preaching and teaching in the coming months. In the equip hour, While the kids are in their Sunday school classes, we'll be studying the passages of the New Testament that address our relationships to each other or to one another as it unfolds in the New Testament. Today we looked at the umbrella command of loving one another, uh, and we'll look at all the rest of the instructions of what we're supposed to do to one another in the coming weeks and perhaps even months. In the preaching slot here in our liturgy, our order of worship, I want us to begin this week a four-week series on the divine structure of Scripture. I want you to know where you are and where you're going when you dive into reading the Bible. Then we're going to take a month to study in the Minor Prophets, the book of Haggai. He delivers several sermons in his short prophecy. We're going to look at those. And then moving toward the spring, we will embark on a much longer study of the book of Acts. So if you want to look ahead to those books, you can begin your study. We'll be there, Lord willing, uh, shortly. But before we dive into a study of Haggai or Acts, Let's make sure we understand the divine structure of Scripture. It was about 10 years ago, I did a few summary lessons in the Sunday school hour, uh, and I want to expand that here in these four sermons to come. This general flow of the outline, pretty much what you'll see on your handout each week, is, is completely taken from a class that I had as a freshman in college. All the freshmen were required to take this particular Bible class. And Dr. Mark Minnick, who was a pastor and a professor, still is, um, unfolded for us the structure of Scripture in a way that would help us understand what the Bible means when it says Jesus took these couple of disciples in Luke 24 and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I had grown up in church, in a Christian school, spent a lot of years in a Wana club. So all the programs and Bible teaching, and I had a, a head packed full of data. And it wasn't until that class as a freshman, uh, the divine structure of Scripture under Dr. Minnick, 
um, that all of that data began to take shape in a way that proved far more helpful to me in understanding how all of the Bible was designed to show us Christ, that it's a story about him, either looking forward to him or revealing and unfolding him, and ultimately in Revelation, what to look for in his return. So while much of this over, how long has it been since college? 30-some years now, I suppose. Uh, while much of this is now internalized and, and, and I want it to be so for you, just know that Dr. Mark Minnick either developed this outline or used it from someone uh, to help us as freshmen understand that the Bible isn't just a random collection of historical accounts and religious teachings, but it's all very purposeful in its structure. Perhaps some of you have begun a Bible reading plan. And most of those plans eventually will test your resolve when you get into especially uh, some of the Old Testament books. Lord willing, this series of sermons will help you plow through those difficult chapters or even books such as Leviticus or Deuteronomy, because you'll, you'll see their purpose and their design. As much as you'll read the individual words and thoughts and be able to glean from those, you'll see that they are designed as a whole of Scripture to lead you to a greater understanding, the big picture. And so with God's help, we'll catch a glimpse of how all the Scriptures point to Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, we read this account of these two on the road to Emmaus. They're walking with Jesus, and, and, and I, I couldn't help but smile as Jonathan read the response of those two to this stranger. Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here these last days? They didn't know. But then... Verse 27 tells us that Jesus unfolded all the Scripture and how it pointed to Him. I have to think that those two disciples on the road to Emmaus were able to sit down with their families and maybe not word for word say it as eloquently as Jesus did, but they had an understanding from that moment on all of that stuff that they had heard since they were little kids studying the Hebrew Torah, the law, and all the history accounts and the prophets, all of that now had a little bit more of a, a direction to it. They understood the purpose to it. That was always there, but maybe they hadn't seen it. It was all designed to point them to this Messiah that was coming. And now they knew had come. And so somehow it's my hope that if, if we too would look at how all of Scripture points to Jesus, then we would be equipped when we look at Scripture to know what it's doing in that passage. Why do we read about all these kings? Why does Haggai matter? What he said or his point in history? We'll understand that the Scriptures are pointing us to Christ. 
This is good for us to know because now, now there's design unfolding before us in whatever devotional reading you would have when you turn to any passage of Scripture that's announced from a pulpit sermon, you can put that in its place and know where we are in the story of Christ. I think it will also equip you to make disciples. If I asked you to meet with someone this week for breakfast or lunch and and just give them an understanding of, of the Christian faith from the Bible, you would have this skeleton outline and be able to tell them what Jesus told those two disciples, that all the scriptures, beginning back with Moses and all those years of Israel's history, and all the New Testament, it it all points us to Christ. That can sound, though, almost cliche, that all the Bible points to Christ. And so in these next four weeks, Lord willing, you'll see that it really is pretty detailed. The outline will be simple, and there's much more that could unfold. Volumes are written about this kind of biblical theology, theology that unfolds book by book in the Bible. So you're just getting the framework, but that's helpful. Because if you're going to hang drywall and paint it a pretty color and put up sconces and and decorate your house, it's going to start with that framework. That's what these four weeks are intended to do for us. So mark those words in Luke 24, 27, that beginning at Moses Jesus taught them from all of Scripture the things concerning himself. It's interesting, those words are echoed in John's account of Jesus beginning to draw to himself a core of disciples. And we're told of Philip, who found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Rather than just announcing, we have found him, the Messiah, he says, we have found him, the one that Moses talked about, the one the prophets spoke of. The Old Testament told us of this person. So not only does Jesus say, I can can teach you about this death and resurrection that's taken place this weekend, as he talked to those two men on the road to Emmaus, maybe a man and his wife. So we can also say, I know now how the the whole Old Testament pointed forward to this one who has come, Christ. I've mentioned before the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, subtitled, Every Story Whispers His Name. It's built on this text that you could go anywhere in Scripture and find yourself looking at a a, a billboard because in traveling that path through Scripture, it's going to announce someone's coming. This is who we're talking about. So take heart as we study what may feel, I don't know, academic at times, to think through this summary of the law this morning, and then next week to study an overview of those books of history, then to study the prophets, and then in that fourth sermon, the New Testament, and to see how all of these are divinely designed 
to steer our attention to Christ? Well, you probably know the Bible is a library. 66 books are usually bound together in what we call our modern Bible. Obviously, in the days of original writings, these would have been massive scrolls and even long books divided into multiple scrolls that were unrolled, parchments of sorts. Well, this library that we have in the Bible is organized under two main headings. Surely you know them, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But testament isn't a word we use much anymore. So we might be helped to think of synonyms for that. We could use the word agreement, but that might lack a little bit of of the gravity of the moment. This isn't just kind of an agreement to, hey, I'll meet you at McDonald's at noon tomorrow. So perhaps a better synonym for testament would be covenant. Covenant. Because now we feel this legal and moral weight of obligation to keep one's word. So this Bible of 66 books is divided roughly and generally into this simple understanding of an old covenant and a new covenant or agreement. If we were to look into the Old Testament, we would learn that it was originally written in the Hebrew language. Primarily, the vast majority of it is in Hebrew in its original writing. There was, there's a few passages in the prophets that are written originally in Aramaic, but when you study language, you realize the Hebrew language of the Jewish people was beginning to, to fall away, especially by the end of the prophets and into that transition or intertestamental period, that period between Malachi and Matthew. Aramaic was becoming a kind of a blended language of some Hebrew and Syrian, and it just wasn't the pure Hebrew anymore. So when Jesus is born and what we see in the New Testament, they didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Aramaic. It was the language of the land. The Old Testament begins with the creation of the world in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created. It concludes with the people of Israel, now those people in covenant with God, returning from Babylonian captivity, which was their punishment for breaking the covenant. But now they return to the land. They've rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt a temple. And the Old Testament closes chronologically with the book of Nehemiah. He's the leader. And with the prophecy of Malachi. So if you're reading Nehemiah or Malachi, you've reached the end of the Old Testament timeline. All right? When we look into the New Testament, we would learn it's written primarily in Greek. Covers most of the first century. Begins in... Luke chapter 1, with Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah. That's the chronological beginning of the New Testament, and it concludes somewhere, somewhere in that mounting persecution of Emperor Nero, one of the Caesars in line as Revelation unfolds them. Nero's persecution of the church is just beginning, uh, and likely John writes 
his book of Revelation in that period. So we have these two main divisions, Old and New Covenants or Testaments. But because of like themes, like genres, the church for its study has generally imposed some other classifications of books. So as we study the Old Testament, for example, we will study the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Five books. Then we'll consider books of history. Uh, We've given a classification to books of poetry. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, A different genre of writing. Uh, And that's helpful in then understanding their message. We have two categories of prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. But know this, major and minor is simply a reference to longer and shorter. There, There has never been any greater esteem of Isaiah versus Haggai. It's just purely the length. They, they lumped the big long ones together and the many short ones together. And so we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jeremiah's lamentation, and then Ezekiel and Daniel making up the major prophets. And then there's Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Becca, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi, all right, in the minor prophets. Had to memorize those and say the whole 66 books of the Bible in, you know, 30 seconds back in Awana Club. So they tend to stick. Once in a while when I say over in Zechariah, and I'm like, okay, and act like I know where I'm going. The minor prophets, only because they're short. Some of them uh, a chapter or two. In the New Testament, we think of Gospels those eyewitness accounts. We think of the book of Acts, the explosion of the church, the letters, the teachings to that fledgling church, and then the book of Revelation. But it's interesting as we read the New Testament, we find that Christ referred to the Old Testament with just two categories. He refers to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. It's not because he ignored poetry. No, he quoted from that as well. He didn't ignore the books of history. The point of the Jewish mind was simply to recognize that there was the law given by Moses, those first five books, and then there was this long record of history and revelation from God, and that period came not from Moses but through the rest of the prophets. So all of Israel's history is governed by these eras of God communicating through Moses in his record of the law, or through the prophets who prophesied during all those eras of different kings and kingdoms. So the Old Testament is rightly considered the law and the prophets in one designation or classification of books, or we could call it law and history and poetry. None of those terms are biblical in the sense of this is the way it has to be. It just is that summary of Old Testament uh, compilation. This morning, our task is to look at the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and understand how these books would have 
been used by Jesus to teach those two on the road to Emmaus something about him, his coming, his work of redemption that just unfolded before those two when they saw him crucified and wondered if he would rise from the dead. In Hebrew, these first five books are called the Torah. You may hear that even in English reference to the first five books. Uh, The Torah, it's the law. Oftentimes, in our classification, maybe even in the front of your Bible, it would be called the Pentateuch. That's more of a Greek title that has been given to those first five books. Penta, meaning five, and the Tuk part, meaning scroll or book. So simply five books. So if you hear Pentateuch, nothing fancy. It's the first five books. It's the law. Those books given by God through Moses. Now, our outline in the coming weeks will be similar each week, at least in the main points. Here's the first. What is the content of these books that we're examining? Today, the books of the law. What is the content? Now, obviously, by this I don't mean what's the chapter content, what are the themes of every book. Stepping back, remember this is only framework. Far more detail could be added. But this is framework to shape our understanding. What makes up the books of the law? Its content is first composed of laws. Lots of them. Oh, we're kind of familiar with ten of them that flow pretty readily from our memory. But in total, according to rabbinical tradition, 613 laws. So when you start reading Leviticus and you start hearing about laws on how to govern the masters and their servants, uh, laws governing lending or borrowing money or tools, laws governing how to help your neighbor if his ox is in the dish and a ditch, and other laws governing how to help your neighbor when his ox is in the ditch if it's on the Sabbath. All these laws that unfold, some of them had clear moral implications and weight. Others, we think... I don't know why God did that other than to set his people apart and make them distinct. Why why would God command not to blend cotton with other fibers in, in their garments and such? So all these laws that unfold, 613, there are instructive laws, what we would call positive laws, the do's, 248 of them, This is what you should do. Things like honor your father and mother. And then there are 365 prohibitive laws. The negative commands. The don'ts. Do not covet. All these commands are lumped together in what the Jews would have considered to be the law. Now, Somewhere along the way, to help us think through them, things like mixing fabric and garment from don't commit adultery, because our minds recognize moral weight, we started classifying laws as either civil laws or maybe ceremonial law or moral law. 
But I would suggest to you that those headings are only helpful in us thinking through the purpose that God gave in those laws. Because when the Jews received these laws and the way they interpreted them throughout their history was that they were all simply defined as law. And we, and we can't separate civil and ceremonial and moral and try to say which ones, for example, we might obey today. It was all the law. It all came from God, and to break any of the law came with the consequence of being a lawbreaker. So all these laws, some of you are thinking that's far more than any my parents imposed on me, being a product of Christian school and uh, Christian university, saw a lot of handbooks and a lot of rules and some made up because of some crazy behavior that just happened last weekend. There's another law for the book. Um, we, we understand laws piling up. Uh, but remember, when all this began, and by all this I mean in the beginning God created, there was only one law. And that law is essentially God is in charge. In Matthew 22, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets could be summarized or they could hang on these two hooks, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if, if you're loving God the way he has dictated to us, that's not an isolated kind of relationship. That's going to affect how you treat others. In essence, no matter how many rules, whether it's one in the Garden of Eden 613 for the nation of Israel, however many unfold in the New Testament for us, the conflict is still the same. Will I do it God's way or my own way? My own way, thus being influenced by the temptation and lie of the devil. Will I love God enough to obey him? Or will I demonstrate that I love myself more and do what I want to do? Laws. When you get to Leviticus in your Bible reading and begin reading through all the laws, uh, it will get tedious. But I trust you can remember that not only are you learning about the issue that we'll get to in a moment, but you are real, those laws are, are signs that are pointing you to a greater understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. So labor through them. Feel the very tedious nature of them because I'm not... I'm not opposed to you feeling that all of those laws are indeed tedious. And maybe even the thought would come to your mind, how could anyone keep all this? And you will begin now to read the fine print on that billboard. Things like, you can't. And you'll never be righteous and holy like God is. And the Garden of Eden makes that clear. You chose sin and you were driven out and an angel is there to make sure you never come back in because there is no getting back into rightness or holiness or fellowship with God. As you labor through the reading of all those laws, you are beginning to develop exactly what the Old Testament wanted to cultivate in you. A longing for something better. 
Not only were there these 613 laws, but to break any one of the laws was essentially to declare you to be a sinner, a lawbreaker. Physical death for some grievous crimes, but certainly the reality of spiritual death, as God had said in Genesis 2, that to break his command would begin this process of death in every way. James says it this way in chapter 2, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. I'll put it this way, theoretically. No mild sinner, compared to the really bad sinners, hence my theoretical presentation, no mild sinner will stand before God and say, but I, but I only did this. He will be guilty of having violated all of God's law. It is a unit because it is the revelation of his holy character. So now we have all these 613 laws and to break any one of them is the end. It's over. Well, laws make up part of the content of these first five books of the Bible. The other aspect of content is sacrifices. Sacrifices. Again, the reading of the sacrifices will have you taking notes and still not sure if you're exactly clear on the difference between the burnt offering and the sin offering versus the trespass offering versus the grain offering versus the wave offering versus they have different names sometimes, different applications, and you're thinking, all of these sacrifices, what's going on? Leviticus and Hebrews recount for us all of these sacrifices, some of them goods, Crops, harvest, some of them blood sacrifices. And we read through them all and and we come away asking questions like, could those Old Testament sacrifices take away sin? Was that their point? The answer is absolutely not. Hebrews 10.4, for it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So then we read these of these sacrifices and we think, okay, so if the father had to bring a lamb for his family because they sinned that day, you know, once that lamb was slain, was, was that good? Were they okay now? Would that take care of it permanently? And again, the answer is absolutely not. One sacrifice would not do. Daily weekly, monthly, and then annually in the Day of Atonement, sacrifices were perpetually made, demonstrating scope of sin and scope of atonement, but never saying that you could be done because your sacrifice was sufficient. Hebrews 10, verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. 
Mind you, that's Hebrews talking to those who have now understood Jesus the Messiah. We know, Hebrews says, his sacrifice was once for all. But we have to remember that Hebrews 10.11 describes the system under the old covenant that was in place. Those people knew that 613 laws hung over them and they were lawbreakers. All these laws they couldn't keep and now they had to make all these sacrifices that couldn't put an end to their sin. Hebrews makes it clear there were laws they couldn't keep. Not even the priest that they went to to make their sacrifice was sinless. Before he could make sacrifices that they brought to him on their behalf, he had to make sacrifices on his own behalf because he was a sinner too. Laws they couldn't keep, sacrifices that couldn't cleanse. Let me give you a summary in Hebrews 10, verses 1 to 3. For since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it, the law, can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased, they would, they, excuse me, otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is the reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If any one of those sacrifices had been sufficient, they would not have made more sacrifices. But as it was daily, weekly, monthly, annually, the sacrifices were made. Imagine living in a day where your religious system was a priest standing daily at his service of making offerings repeatedly for the same sins with the same sacrifices because those sacrifices could never take away your sin. You would, you would be longing for something better, something more permanent, something effectual. But this is the content. Starkly put in our framework of the law, what's there? Laws and sacrifices, incomplete as they are. Let's look at a second understanding of the books of the law. What is the issue of the books of the law? What is the point of laws that instruct us how to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. What is the point of these books of the law that tell us once we fail, we must cover up that sin with a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, in order to be able to fellowship with God again? What does the law tell us about God? The issue of the books of the law is holiness. Holiness. These books are making the point that God is holy and we are sinful. That's the issue that you come away with when you read the books of the law. You keep seeing this sin that has to be dealt with with sacrifice. Why? 
because we keep sinning. We're sinners. And the early chapters of the books of the law, Genesis 2 and 3, give us the record of humanity. And that first representative of all humanity, Adam, sins in the garden, chooses his own way over God's way. And now we just keep sinning. Every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart, only evil continually. Genesis 6 tells us, we sin. We are sinful, but God is holy. So Adam and Eve in the garden, hiding from God because they feel for the first time shame. They know something has been broken, not only fellowship, but true unity in the holiness of God. It's broken. So they hide themselves. They hear God's voice of judgment, and they're driven from the garden. They can't coexist the holiness of God, and the sinfulness of man. In our Christian faith, as we call it, this is the key question. This is what the Bible addresses. This is is what should help shape our evangelism. We're trying to answer this question, how can sinful man be made right with a holy God? We believe we have the answer for that. And what we're studying today is that that answer began to unfold even in a system of laws that they could not keep and sacrifices that could not atone. The issue is holiness. And this chasm between man's sinfulness and God's holiness is revealed again and again and again in Scripture. And every time we think there could be a new start and a a new beginning and this is what righteousness would look like, we're sorely disappointed. In every broken law and in every judgment of God on his people, we're understanding the holiness of God. The law is given so that men would walk in this path of righteousness Revealing God's holiness. Judgment is given, either on the guilty party or on the substitute sacrifice because God is holy, communicating that something must suffer the consequence to satisfy justice. The issue is holiness. And now, as with each of the divisions we'll study, Having looked at content, the issue, we ask the question, what is the function of these books? What is the design or the purpose behind God's plan in unfolding the story of Christ in laws and sacrifices? Why was he communicating his holiness in these books? What is the purpose It's obvious that humanity has a problem. We're not law keepers, and our sacrifices cannot take away our sin and guilt. 
Those who intercede on our behalf, our priests, are themselves sinful and needing to cleanse themselves with the same sacrifices we bring. And all of us face the penalty of death for breaking God's law. We're in bad shape. If you only had the first five books of the Bible, in reading them, so far, Genesis through Deuteronomy, we would say the Old Testament is doing a good job of stirring in us a longing for something better. If we were belligerent, we'd be saying, I need some answers. Why this system that seems so unsatisfying, so incomplete? And the answer to those kind of thoughts and questions is just the word, exactly. Exactly. When you start thinking, but what a, how, how many cows have to die before, before some kind of sin is actually covered and it's done? How many times do I have to bring another animal How often? We might actually get to the point where we would say, is there not one sacrifice that would be sufficient for all of this mess? The books of the law prepare us for the perfect priest with the perfect sacrifice. Listen to Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent or tabernacle or temple, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The transgressions committed under the first covenant hung over every sinner. But in the making of a new covenant, sealed with sprinkled blood, not of bulls and goats, for their blood could never take away sin, but with the blood of Christ himself as the mediator of this covenant, there is the hope of the eternal inheritance. The whole function of these five books of the Old Testament law is to create a desire, a longing in us for a better covenant. The first covenant is good. It's God's plan. It accomplished what it was designed to do. But part of what it was designed to do was to 
stir up in us a desire for something better. Or as Hebrews 9.11 said, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. That's what they were waiting for. Something truly good. Give me some good news that outweighs the bad news of laws I can't keep. I'm a sinner and sacrifices that can't fully cleanse. Read the books of the law and let them feel dissatisfying, incomplete, insufficient, especially based on what you know from the New Testament, which wasn't the luxury of those who lived in the Old Testament. They had to look forward with the eye of faith. Read Hebrews chapter 11. In the promises God had made, that the inheritance was theirs. The longing for a better covenant, a better law, calling for a better sacrifice, made by a better priest in a better temple with a better outcome. All of these you have in Christ. When you turn from sin and you trust in Jesus, the Son of God as Savior and Lord. He is righteousness and holiness for you. It's a better law. It's a law that's written in our hearts. It's a law of love, it's called in the New Testament, a law of liberty. I am free to love God as I should. So let him work his will and good pleasure in your life this week. That's what the law teaches us. These books of the law with their sacrifices and their laws that feel so inadequate or insufficient should remind us that I don't live in a system of inadequacy or insufficiency anymore. Christ is sufficient. And we can be righteous. We can be law keepers today, this afternoon, throughout this week, even when life squeezes us a little bit. Why? Because we are in Christ who has kept this law for us. He is atoning sacrifice for you. So confess and forsake sin and no forgiveness. I don't think I'm on thin ice to say that none of us had a perfect week our perfect sinless new year was probably wrecked somewhere in this week. And yet we claim the promise of 1 John again and again and again that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because Hebrews 9 said he didn't make this covenant with blood of bulls and goats but with his own blood securing the eternal blessings for us. Take heart. Failing Christian already in this new year. Forgiveness is found in this sufficient sacrifice. He's the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for you. He doesn't atone for his own sin first, putting you on hold to get himself right. No, he is our 
righteous high priest, and he ever lives, meaning he rose from the dead and he's living now, making intercession for you. He will hold you fast. He is the temple, not made with hands, cannot be destroyed. A Muslim terrorist could bomb the churches in the Middle East. India's churches can be ravaged by the law of their land. But they don't worship in a temple made with hands. They worship the living God through Jesus Christ. A better temple. And Jesus is our sufficiency. The better sacrifice, the better priest, the better temple, the better law. How the law, those what we would call tedious books, how the law magnifies the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in them. They're not dead and dusty books. It's a day gone by for sure. And a day that we can rightly say good riddance to. Because Hebrews overwhelmingly reminds us that this covenant in Jesus is better. It's better. It's better. So labor through those books. And remember the simple outline. Laws you can't keep. Sacrifices that couldn't cleanse, to teach us of God's holiness and create in us a longing for something more. And then rejoice in Jesus who is the more. Heavenly Father, thank you for the law which shows us our sin, which shows us our need for a Savior who shows us your mercy and love. Today we have seen the wonder of your plan of redemption in Christ. We see that where sin abounded, grace abounded more. In the righteousness of Christ, in his substitute death on our behalf, and in his bodily resurrection to give us life everlasting. Give us eyes to see these truths, hearts and minds to believe them so that we would be followers of Jesus. Made righteous, declared forgiven, recipients of eternal life. In thanksgiving for these truths and these gifts through Christ, we offer our lives of obedience to the praise of your glory the glory which we beheld in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.